the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, I want to begin with a deep word of thanks uh, to Dean Pearson and to the clergy here and to all of you for welcoming me so warmly to the Advent. I have heard of the Advent for many years and I have not had the good fortune to visit until this week. So I'm just delighted to be here. And I've not been to Birmingham before this visit. So I was able to do a bit of uh, sightseeing after uh, preaching yesterday. Walked uh, down to Kelly Ingram Park and had a, had a wonderful afternoon there. And uh, went used book shopping this morning. So uh, things continue to go well for me in Birmingham. And I'm, I'm very happy to have been able to visit. I hope, I hope to be back sometime. You've been wonderfully hospitable. And it's been a great joy to be with you. So I look forward to conversations over lunch, but hopefully more conversations in the future, uh, Lord willing. One of the difficulties that I think we as believers sometimes experience when we read the Bible is that we can notice discrepancies between our lived experience and what the Bible seems to be describing as a life of salvation or joy or obedience. And we very much want to have connection, don't we? When we engage scripture, we want there to be a, uh, that spark of connectedness between what we live and what we're reading about. That's, that's what makes our faith come alive. That's what we pray for. That's what we hope for. And one of the challenges of being a Christian one of the difficulties is that, that that connection doesn't always happen. One of the things that can happen is we, we can notice a discrepancy, for instance, between the various kinds of suffering and trouble that we're undergoing and the apparently more noteworthy or noble kinds of trouble or suffering that the saints and the apostles and the characters in Scripture seem to undergo. Do you ever have that experience? I think we sometimes feel as though there's a, there's a gulf, there's a chasm between the very mundane, the very ordinary sorts of suffering that we live out and the apparently more sort of theatrical and, and headline-making suffering and trouble that the characters in the Bible undergo. I was, I was recently talking with a friend of mine who is a, is a Christian, and she was talking with me. She was observing this tension in her own experience, her own life. She wanted to identify with the characters in the pages of the Bible. She knew that's what she was supposed to do as a Christian. You're supposed to find your nourishment from the Bible. So she, she wanted that connection. She wanted to do what uh, the great theologian George Lindbeck once described as, as learning to narrate our stories in light of the larger story, the capital S story of Israel and Jesus. She wanted to inhabit the biblical story. But her difficulty was that she was a mother of young children. She wasn't a missionary or a, or a minister. She was lonely. She said, I'm often skeptical, often doubting in my faith, living in a suburb in 21st century America, not laying down her life for the poor in some far-flung, exotic corner of the world. And she wondered, how is it legitimate for her to find comfort in the stories of the martyrs and the, and the prophets, people like Daniel, people like the Apostle Paul, who's being shipwrecked, 
you know, she's wanting to find comfort from this, and she knows that her her shipwreck, as it were, is is cleaning spit up off of her off of her newborn. She missed the connection. She understood how the Bible might bring powerful comfort to the widows and the children, for instance, of those 21 Coptic martyrs, martyred by ISIS fighters. What she couldn't understand is why her own, by comparison, day-to-day mundane troubles might be the object of God's concern and God's mercy. Well, I don't think my friend is alone. I've talked with many Christians who share her worries. Believers who know that their greatest struggles are with depression and anxiety, with cancer or unemployment, eating disorders, or wayward teenagers. And it can be hard when you know that much of your suffering isn't so obviously suffering for Jesus to discern whether the promises of comfort and deliverance and hope that you read about in Scripture really apply to you. And if, 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 if any of that describes you this morning, if any of that is your experience, what I want to do in the remaining minutes that we have together is offer you a word of hope. Offer you a way to see yourself in that story of Israel and Jesus. Well, yesterday, uh, and I know not all of you were here yesterday, so I'll just do do a bit of summary. Yesterday, I spoke about the suffering of our Lord Christ as a sort of climax or crystallization of the same trials and travails that God's people Israel experienced before him. So if you were to draw a picture of the sermon that I preached yesterday, you you might imagine it like an upside-down funnel. At the top, there's the broad, wide experience of the testing and the suffering and the refining of God's people. Think of Abraham and his sacrifice of Isaac in this category. Think of Job and his terrible bereavement and physical agony in that category. Think of Daniel and his three friends mourning their exile away from their beloved city of Jerusalem. Think of the psalmist who cried out in Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then, as the, as the funnel narrows, think about the life and ministry of our Lord. He chooses 12 apostles as the harbinger of the end-time regathering of the 12 tribes of Israel from their dispersion and exile. And then, as the funnel gets even narrower towards the end of his public ministry... Think of how even those 12 run away from him in fear as Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus is left alone to face his impending execution. The the great theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar once talked about the Garden of Gethsemane as this painful dialectic between the absent, present church around her Lord. I mean, those, those three apostles are there. They've been drawn with Jesus into that moment of agony. But what happens to them? They abandon him in sleep. And he's left alone. He's that, he's that solitary figure going to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. And at the narrowest point of that funnel, if you picture that funnel narrowing down to its, its most narrow point, there is only Jesus himself, the true Israelite, the one who sums up Israel's anguished suffering and cries of God-forsakenness in himself. I think you can see this at the moment in Mark's Gospel, at the end of Mark's Gospel, when Jesus' agony reaches its highest pitch as he hangs on the cross and prepares to breathe his last. So, 
the whole funnel of history, the whole funnel of Israel's story narrows down to that, to that lonely figure nailed to a cross as he, as he cries out in agony and prepares to surrender his life. But then, in that moment, I think Jesus does something very significant, very noteworthy, very much worth pondering, particularly for us in this season of Lent. Even though he is utterly desolate, he's abandoned even by those who were his closest confidants, even by Peter, James, and John, whose denial he'd already predicted. Even at that moment of his most profound alienation in the gospel, Jesus does not in that moment make up his own words to pray and thus sort of tear himself away from Israel and isolate himself. Rather, he uses Israel's words of prayer as his words of prayer. He takes on his lips the cry of Psalm 22, which had been prayed for centuries in the temple and in the synagogue. He takes that prayer on his lips in that dying moment of alienation, and he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is to say, Jesus in that moment identifies himself with his people. He stands in solidarity with his people, with them, right with them. The theologian Richard Bauckham puts it like this. Jesus asks the question of why God has forsaken him, not merely on his own behalf, but as the question asked by those whom his use of the words identifies him. It is their protest that he voices on their behalf. This is the fullest meaning of the fact that the words of Jesus' cry from the cross are borrowed from the Psalms of Lament. What Jesus does, in other words, in that moment, is take on to himself the sufferings, the sin, the anguish, the cry, the curse of the exile, that yearning, all that yearning of the centuries is met in him at that moment. He so closely identifies himself with Israel's suffering that he makes that suffering his own. Their anguish becomes his anguish. Their passionate plea for God not to forsake them becomes his passionate plea for God not to forsake him. And now I think we need to think for a few minutes about what this means for us today. If we imagine that funnel that I mentioned, narrowing, narrowing, narrowing down to Jesus, where Jesus absorbs all the suffering and all the, all the yearning for redemption of all those years in the Old Testament, then I think the next picture we need to imagine is of that same funnel, but, but turned around the other direction so that now it begins to widen out. All of history has been narrowing down to this moment where Jesus dies, and now we see the funnel taking a different shape, beginning to, to widen. In other words, we need to picture not just the, the trajectory that climaxes with the cross of Jesus, we need to picture the result that flows from the cross of Jesus. If Jesus has so identified himself with the anguished cries of his people, then that means that all other human cries, every time you're yearning for peace, every time you're groaning for wholeness, you feel your lack of redemption and you cry out. Whatever form that takes, whatever those cries may be, those can now be our way of participating in the suffering of our Lord Jesus. What 
I mean is that since he has shared that cry of ours, since he has made himself one with that cry from Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Therefore, now our sufferings can become a sharing in his sufferings. Now that Jesus has gone to the uttermost point of identifying with human anguish, that means now, hereafter, there is no human anguish that is alien or unimportant or irredeemable to Jesus. And what I think this means is that when we today are feeling grief over very mundane forms of suffering, very ordinary forms of suffering... When you're feeling grief over your teenage son and you're wondering how to close the distance that's opened up between you and him. You don't know how to do it and you're crying out. When anxiety about your mounting debt gnaws at you in the wee hours of the night. When you you lament the tension that's suddenly cropping up unexpectedly in, in, in your friendship with your oldest friend. When you receive the the utter shock of that diagnosis in the doctor's office, those very sufferings may become your way of remembering your intimate union with your Lord Christ who died for you. They may be, sometimes you hear the Catholic tradition talk about uniting our sufferings to the sufferings of Jesus, and that's exactly right. If Jesus has shared humanity's anguish in the cross, then today your anguish may be your way of identifying with Jesus. One of my favorite biblical scholars is is the Methodist scholar Morna Hooker, and she says these sufferings of Adam, these sufferings of the human race, the human condition, whatever that may be for you today, whatever it is, have been pulled over for the Christian. I love that image. They've been been pulled over or baptized into Christ. She goes on. Because Christ is fully one with man in all man's experiences or humanity's experiences, then that means that these same experiences can now be understood in terms of life in Christ. And there's deep comfort in that. So I want you to take heart today. I want, I, want, I want to take heart with you today. Because Christ has made himself so intimately familiar with our pain, because he has taken the words of that psalm into his own mouth at the cross, we may have the assurance that our pain is his now too. And as that funnel widens, and as you begin to think of all the innumerable ways that we groan and we yearn for the redemption that's been promised to us, and the list could be endless, that funnel is continuing to widen the longer history goes on. Whatever you may find yourself groaning about there, you can refer it back to that that narrowest point of the funnel of our Lord's death and his anguish on our behalf. Whatever form your cry may be taking today, be assured it is a cry he has already uttered on your behalf. He has been there before you, and he invites you into the victory that he has won in his resurrection on your behalf. Amen.